and we're excited that you're here. I, I love preaching the Bible. Uh, to be honest with you, I love Easter Sunday, but I love every Sunday. It's my favorite day of the week uh, because we get to get together and witness and experience the power of God and the work of God through a community of people who need Jesus. Amen? Anybody need Jesus in the house today? There's about 30 of you. The rest of you, we're going to work on it. We're going to work on it. Uh, I love preaching the Bible. Uh, that's what I do, and that's what I believe God put me on this earth to do, to honor and glorify Him. I, by nature, I'm a doubter. Uh, my first name is Thomas, and I've lived on this uh, little blue dot long enough to have been burned by a lot of people that have told me things that seemed too good to be true, uh, that I believed because I trusted them, and then it was too good to be true. Uh, some of you, that's your experience. You, you've heard in churches, you can come as you are, and you came, but you weren't welcomed. <laughs> Uh, you, you've heard that God loves everybody, yet uh, you were met with the scorn of his followers that made you think that maybe he was joking about you. Uh, I, I have grown up enough now and learned uh, that at times I am cautious about the promises of man. Uh, and that led me into college being what I would call a uh, southern atheist. I went to church because I was supposed to, because my grandma sang in the choir, my first ever concert was not Hootie and the Blowfish, that was my second one. My, my first concert was the Gaither Vocal Band Homecoming, featuring Vestal Goodman. Can he, could he, would he, could he, can he, could he, would he, it's a can he, could he, would he within, well, can he. Okay, that, that was where I grew up. I knew the gospel, I had heard it, I knew more Bible than the Sunday school teacher and could teach it hungover, and I did throughout high school. But I doubted. I doubted that the resurrection that we speak of most frequently on Easter Sunday was worthy of total allegiance in my youth that day. I doubted that this was anything more than a religious service and a religious ritual that we were supposed to walk through. In fact, that's what the first Easter morning was. The women that went to the tomb, the three women that showed up first because the disciples were still in doubt and scared, the three men that showed up first at the tomb on the first Easter morning were not going expecting a resurrection. They were going to do a ritual, which is what a lot of us do every Easter. It's a ritual. The resurrection hasn't changed our life. It hasn't changed our marriage. It didn't bring a miracle in our circumstance. Therefore, we give an assent to a God that we don't actually trust, and we aren't even sure if we actually believe. And so throughout my college years, I spent the majority of it trying to disprove reason for following Jesus. So I studied prophecy. I began to do a deep dive into Old Testament prophetic texts that spoke to things that may or may not have happened within the New Testament. And what was the likelihood that the uh, people in the New Testament were just reading the Old Testament and writing in what needed to be fulfilled in order for Jesus to be the Messiah? And as I did a deep dive, I discovered some profound and amazing things. I found out that in order for one person to have ten of the prophetic things that are called for by them in the Old Testament to be fulfilled, in order for them to be a Messiah, that they would have to essentially blindfold themselves, walk into the state of Texas that was three feet deep in silver dollars with one silver dollar that had a red dot on it, and blindfolded in one grab, grab that silver dollar in order for them to fulfill ten of the prophecies that are prophesied in the Old Testament about the Messiah. Ten. I began to study the probability of the resurrection, how a group of cowards that were running could become bold witnesses that died as martyrs. I 
studied how if it were untrue, more than likely they wouldn't have written in the story that three women showed up at the tomb because women's testimonies were not received within community or within public spheres. So if you wanted to write a tall tale, you wouldn't have women showing up at the tomb. You would have disciples that were men that faithfully followed Jesus that weren't hiding in a house in fear who would be at the tomb first. And I've looked at the ins and outs of the resurrection, but as I prayed and labored this week over what to preach and deliver on this Easter morning in the deep south of South Carolina, with all your beautiful pastels, with all of your Easter hams and eggs and everything else that comes in between on this day, I felt like the Lord wanted me to take some time just to simply give you a reminder. And here's the reminder. The resurrection of Jesus is not a theological uh, expedition, point by point, through how one can be saved. In, in its original moment, the resurrection of Jesus was an announcement from God that God had changed the world, that God had made a way for messy, broken, sinful, irrelevant, ir- ir- irreverent people to come into relationship with Him. And in Ephesians chapter 2, one of my favorite books in the Bible, Paul writes to remind the church of this very truth. And that's what I want to preach to you today. If you have your Bibles, open up to the book of Ephesians. This comes right after Galatians. It's, if you hit Philippians, you've gone too far. I'd love for you to open your Bible. There's a chance of you memorizing 7% if you have an open Bible and a, pit, and a pen in your, in your uh, hand. 7% of the sermon. If not, we, we don't have much shot of you knowing much more than 3 or 4% after uh, Sunday's gone. So I, I love for some of this to stick to your bones like peanut butter on a Sunday morning before you go to church. Anybody have a parent that made you eat a spoonful of peanut butter so you wouldn't be hungry when you went to church? Just me. Okay, Ephesians chapter 2. Once you were dead because of your disobedience and your many sins. You used to live in sin, just like the rest of the world, a bank devil, the commander of the powers in the unseen world. He is the spirit that is at work in the hearts of those who refuse to obey God. All of us used to live that way, following the passions and desires and inclinations of our sinful nature. By our very nature, we were subject to God's anger just like everyone else, but God. So rich in mercy. And he loved us so much that even though we were dead because of our sins, he has given us life when he raised Christ from the dead. It's only by God's grace that you have been saved. For he raised us from the dead along with Christ and seated us with him in heavenly realms because we are united with Christ Jesus. So God can point to us in all future ages as examples of the incredible wealth of his grace and kindness towards us as shown in all he has done for us who are united with Christ Jesus. God saved you by his grace when you believe and you can't take credit for it. It is a gift from God. Salvation is not a reward for the good things we have done, so none of us can boast about it, for we are God's masterpiece. He has created us anew in Christ Jesus, so we can do good things he planned for us long ago. This is the word of God for the people of God. Praise be to God. This text, 10 verses, breaks down into three parts that I want to deliver to you today, hopefully by the Holy Spirit, in a way that would intersect your life, your season, and circumstance with a reminder of the existing hope that we have in Christ Jesus. The three ways it breaks down is, number one, your story. What your story was in the beginning. Our story's beginning. Number two, the second thing we'll see 
is God's passion to change that story. And finally, number three, what we will see is the fruit of a God-changed story. What is your story? If I were to begin that question with you, most of you would likely, if I were to say, how'd you get here today, start with recent events. You likely wouldn't go back into the 70s and say, well, I had parents that were into disco. Uh, My dad's hips didn't lie. My mom saw my dad across the room and she thought, oh my my. They went to Waffle House, a burgeoning love was born, and then a stork stopped by and delivered me into their hands. That, That probably isn't where you start, like what predates you and how you were born and where you were born. Those are details that you likely leave out. And instead, you probably have recent history that would dictate what you would say about where you recently are at. So if I were to ask you in church today, how'd you get here? You more than likely would start with, well, we've been struggling, or it's been going great, and we got a raise, or we got lost a job, or we bought a house, or we moved to a, out of another state and into another, another state, which seems to be about half of South Carolina at this point. Welcome. I moved from California, but I was here back in the day, so I still have a stake in the ground. <laughs> at least that's what I tell myself. Our story's beginning is not a story that we like to bring up. It has details that we don't want to point out. Verse 1 tells us that we once were dead because of our disobedience and our many sins. It's not a way of saying, like in The Princess Bride, that we were sort of dead. It's a way of saying that you were dead dead. Uh, You were dead. How do we get here? Well, if you go all the way back to the book of Genesis, we're told that there was a garden. And in that garden, there were boundaries. Those boundaries were set not by us, but by God. God determined in the garden what was good to eat and what was not good to eat. God determined what was for us and what was not for us. And within that garden, we're told that Adam and Eve lived. And Eve looked on a tree that God said wasn't good and said, but I see good in it. Which is the human experience. All of us, when we look at the word of God, we're either God's messengers or God's editors. We either receive this as an authority over our lives or we look at it as a suggestion for our lives. Our invitation to you is to understand that every word and every verse and every line is a revelation of a Messiah and a God who is perfect and blameless, who loves an unperfect and unholy people. He desires relationship with us. The point of reading the Bible is not so that you can find yourself to be a more perfect person than your neighbor, but so that you would understand that you're a wretched person in need of a perfect person to stand in your place. See, for for us... What you need to know is that Adam and Eve were told that in the day they ate of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, they would what? Die. Yet they ate of it, and what happened? They physically were still alive. So so you need to understand something about the state of us before Jesus intersects our story. Our state before God is we are spiritually dead, though we physically live. You have a heartbeat. But what you need to know is at your creation, God gave you a pneuma, a spirit inside of you so that you could have fellowship with God. You were created to observe creation in the physical realm and give glory to God as you worshiped him through your spirit as his spirit moved and worked around and through you. All of us, because of sin, have been cut off from the opportunity to do that. We are in a tomb that's spiritually dead and cut off from God. Romans chapter 3 highlights this. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Romans chapter 6 lays out the consequence of this in 6.23. For the wage of sin is death, but Christ came to give us life that was eternal. And so what we have in our life and in our story is a life that is cut off from God. Now what we find within that story is excuses for why we're there. 
Because the human existence, especially in the South, is we like to blame everyone for why we are so sinful, while we love to take credit and give credit to no one for why we're so good. Have you ever noticed that all of the good things in your life are because you worked hard? But all the bad things in your life are because of dysfunctional bosses and people and parents and situations that set you up to have to be so sinful. Let me just simply remind you that sinful responses to sinful behavior of others doesn't make your sin less sinful. I'm going to say it again because somebody is awakened. I, I, I'm just trying to get you awake in the church here. Sinful responses to sinful people doesn't make your sinful actions less sinful. You're still a sinner and it still carries the same consequence. It cuts you off from God. It grieves fellowship with God. And as a result of it, you and I find ourselves in a state of broken and dead relationship from God. Happy Easter. <laughs> this is our story's beginning. Our disobedience and our sin, not their disobedience and their sin, it's mine. It's particular to me. It's my brokenness. It's my broken decisions. It's my sinful responses. It's my decisions to carry on the sinful broken history of the family that came before me and the family that now I have an authority over to lead and walk in. It's my sinful decisions. It's not my father. It's the continuation of bad behavior that I've decided to pass down instead of end at the cross. Are you tracking with me? So verse 1 lays out that we were dead because of our disobedience and many sins. We used to live in sin. So this is the second thing I want you to see. Many of us, not only do we like to take credit for the good things in our life and blame everyone for the bad things in our life, we then like to minimize how much sin there actually is in our life. It's a favorite pastime for church folk in church, right? No one really is a sinner here. We used to sin. But I know you. I follow you on Facebook. Remember, you accepted the request. I've seen you drive with our stickers on the back of your car. And I've contributed alongside you to the chaos that is around us. You see, the problem is not that sin is an occasional habit where we need like a genie to come and overtake the sinful moments of our life. The problem is sin is our lifestyle before Jesus intersects our story. It's our life. It's, it's what we live for. Now, we struggle with this, and we don't like it. It makes us uncomfortable. But let me make sure you understand the bigger picture of sin. You see, sin is the consistent action that seeks to live a life that is apart from the power and authority of God. Many of you have heard that sin is to miss the mark. That's true. That's the Greek word, hamartia. That's what it means. When we sin, it's we miss the mark. But there's a big difference between missing the mark accidentally and trespassing against God intentionally. And the Bible says the problem's not that you accidentally, whoops, sinned occasionally, had a mishap or a misstep. The problem is after you sinned and learned it was wrong, you still did it, which made it a trespass. You see, it's like commission and omission. Commission is a type of sin where you know it's wrong and you do it anyway. And every one of your kids have demonstrated how this is rooted within our flesh, right? Because you look at your kid and you're like, don't do that. And your kid's like, what are you going to do about it now? To which you think, Holy Spirit, intervene or they're going to judgment right now. Like it's going to happen because I'm going to murder. Right? Thank God God's not like you and me. You see, it's commission, 
uh, when you know it's wrong. It's omission. Omission is, I don't know it's wrong and it was an accident. So the first time your kid makes a mistake, right, they say a word they didn't know and you're like, oh, where'd you hear that? And they're like, oh, your TV show. And you're like, oh, okay, we don't say that, okay? That, that's the omission, the, the idea of like, I've sinned, it still has the same consequence, it still has the same uh, repercussion, but not only have we sinned occasionally, we then found out it was sin and then got even more delight in doing it. It, it, it made it that more joyful. It's wrong. Oh, it's wrong. And there's something inside of us that loves that it's wrongs. That likes to trespass and go, can I get away with it? And for a lot of us, we run around going, I'm getting away with it. And the Bible lays out, your story before God intervenes is that you are in a lifestyle of sin. And the problem is, is not only are you sinning accidentally because you don't know everything about God and what he's laid out, but you know things about God and you still don't do them. So you've sinned by omission and commission, and as a result of it, you become like the devil, the commander of the powers of the unseen world. He is the spirit that is at work in the hearts of those who refuse to obey God. So literally, the idea is Satan never wants to be under the authority of God. He's good with being equal to God, but not God being over him. So I'm fine if Satan is over, is, uh, I'm fine if uh, God is equal to me, if he's a good teacher, if he is someone who's suggesting a way to live. But I'm not okay with him being the way, the truth, and the lie. I, I, I'm fine with him being an authority, but I don't want him to be the authority over my life. I'm fine with him being an idea, or an ideology, or a way, but I'm not okay with him being the exclusive, only way. Th th this makes me uncomfortable. And in that moment, we become just like Satan because we take his side and thinking, okay, God is someone that we are equal to, not someone that we're to surrender to. God is someone that we are to be eye to eye with, not someone that we're to be bowed before. And this is the problem in a lot of our lives. We want to be equal to God, but we don't want to serve God. We want a part of God in our life, but we don't want to give our life to God. So God, you can have my scraps, you can have my leftovers, you can have what's left, you can have what's outside of the margins of the other idols in my life, i.e. my kids, my money, my resources, my time, and everything else that I put before you. And then whatever's left over, I'll get back around to sliding it to you. Uh, this is the life that we lived in. It's a life that had no regard and no desire to surrender and bend the knee to God. And the text goes on in verse 3 and says, you all lived this way. This is a human problem. Following, here's how you do it, the passionate desires and inclinations of your sinful nature. Do you know Eve looked at the tree and said it was good? She saw good in it. Seems good. It's desirable to the flesh. It's no different than what we do today in a lot of our lives. Excusing sin and overlooking scripture. Seems good. How many times in dating life, because this is the easiest one and the lowest hanging fruit to go to, were you looking at something that you know wasn't right and you're like, but, but it seems good. They have a job. They're, they're well put together. I mean, they're lukewarm when it comes to Jesus. They have no passion, no drive, and no fruit of the Spirit. But you know, this seems good. And then you get into the relationship and months later you're crying out going, God, why is it not good? Because he said it wasn't good before you ever got into it. You see, the problem is a lot of us trust our eye over Scripture's eye when it comes to what's good. 
We think that we are the arbitrators. We are the people that can see good clearly. And the Bible says, no, no, your eyes are blind. You see on the surface what you think is good, what you think is fulfilling, what you think will bring peace, what you think can bring joy. And in reality, only God brings peace, joy, and fulfillment in your life. And so as long as you're running around to things that God created and trying to put them in his seat and thinking that they're going to give you what only God can give you, what you will find is no good in your life. Though you may have a lot of fun on the adventures of trying to find a good apart from God that cannot be found. All of us have lived this way. We follow the passion, desires, and inclinations of our sinful nature. By our very nature, we were subject to God's anger just like everyone else. Hmm. This is your story. But God didn't want to leave your story there. God's desire is that if that's where you're at, your story would have another chapter, another story, another part written to it in parallel beside it. And so he writes in these words, and I love them. Two words. But God, you were dead. No way to get the tomb open, but God. You were cut off from God in your sin, but God. You see, this is the beauty you had no way to awaken yourself. You were wandering from God, but God awakened you. This appears 45 times throughout the Bible. Noah had a but God moment. God was about to flood the earth, but God remembered Noah, his servant. God, uh, in the middle of Joseph's story, has but God moments in that story. His brother sold him into slavery, but God was with Joseph. He was in prison, but God was with Joseph, how many of you are grateful for the fact that you have a God that whenever the world renders an edict over your life, steps in with his but God moments and says, no, 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 what they intended for evil, I'm actually going to make it my masterpiece and bring it to my glory for my good and your good in my time. How many of you are grateful that we serve a God who steps into the stories of our life? James Montgomery Boyce, a famous pastor, said, if you understand those two words, but God, they will save your soul, and if you recall them daily and live by them, they will transform your life completely. Martin Lloyd-Jones, who had a really great accent, which makes me like him even more as a preacher, in California, I had a great accent, and people would come around. Now, I'm just normal. No one, no one's like, oh, that's special. No, they're like, oh, that's my native tongue. Martin Lloyd-Jones, he said, the words, but God, contain the whole gospel of Christ within them. Uh, some of my favorite but God moments, see if the house can wake up a little bit. Genesis chapter 50, but uh, it says this, verse 20, You intended to harm me, Joseph speaking to his brothers, but God intended it all for good. Every moment of it, all the betrayal, all of the lying, God intended it to be a part of his good. He brought me to this position so I could save the lives of many people. Some of you, you aren't there yet. All you have is the threats and the impact of what evil people have done to you. But let me remind you that what we have in Christ Jesus is an active, engaged Savior that's at work in our stories. And he brings the broken parts of the stories not to be absent from the final picture, but to be a part of the beauty of the final picture that he paints. How many of you are grateful we have a God that steps in when people intend evil against us? Anybody in the house? Three people. Psalm 73, verse 26. My health may fail and my spirit may grow weak, but God remains the strength of my heart. He is mine forever. Acts chapter 3. 
Look at what it says in verse 15. You kill the author of life, but God raised him from the dead, and we are witnesses to this fact. Or if you go over to Romans chapter 5, verses 6 and 8, we were utterly helpless. Christ came at just the right time and died for us sinners. Now, most people will not be willing to die for an upright person, though someone might perhaps be willing to die for a person who is especially good, which is none of us that are in the room. But God showed his great love for us by sending Christ to die for us while we were still sinners, cut off, wandering enemies of God. He came and died. I am so grateful for the but God moments in the Bible because they remind us that though you may think your story is done and your outlook is bleak, that there is still time for God to intervene and change the story. What's this but God in Ephesians chapter 2? What changes our story apart from Christ to being something that's worth talking and celebrating and pointing to? God is so rich in mercy. He's so rich in mercy. And he loved us so much. There are a lot of things that you can be rich in. If you could be rich in one thing and in one area of your life, what would you want to be rich in? We've been playing a game around our dinner table, and the other night, Nora, with my 94-year-old grandmother and my son at the table, said, okay, if you could have lots of family that loved you and you loved them, or you could have lots of money, would you rather have, which one would you rather have? And so my grandmother and I looked at Nora and we said, well, that's an intuitive question for a six-year-old. Which one would you rather have? And at six, she said, I'd take the family. I was like, oh, smart. The Holy Spirit's at work. Immediately, my nine-year-old son said, no, Nora. We need the money. Take the money. Lucas is more honest than most of us want to be in church. If there was one way God could be rich towards you, which would you choose? A bailout financially? More money and status? Let's be honest. Let's look at the prayer lives we're praying. God, bail me out. God, let the lottery ticket hit. God, give me a raise. God, God. Because for a lot of us, we want to be Nora in the story, but we're a lot more like Lucas. We'd rather be rich in wealth than rich in his mercy. No, 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 no. You have no clue what you need. In order for your story to change, it took a God who was rich in mercy. He needed more mercy than you had sin. And the good news is the resurrection story is the story of a God who's got more mercy than the entire world's got sin. God being rich in his mercy. Mercy. Lamentations chapter 3 verses 22 and 23 says this. The steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. His mercies never come to an end. Let me really root in on that. Adulterer in the house. Drug addict in the house. Person who hadn't been here in ages in the house. Depressed and hadn't gotten through it in the house sinner that's gone farther but you profess to have salvation but you're in the house let me let you understand something his mercy is still enough his mercy is still enough his I, I don't care where you've been I don't care what you've done I don't I don't care what it looks like in your mind his mercy is 
enough. It's the greatest scandal in all of history that the holy, righteous, blameless God has come as Emmanuel and he has lived amongst us and he has engaged with us and he has touched the eyes of the blind and opened the mouths of the mute and the ears of the deaf. He's, he's touched the crippled and made them walk. He's touched the leopard and healed their skin. He's been with the harlot and eaten with her and enjoyed it and restored her and given her life. He is the God that steps into the mess of people and he makes messy people holy. He doesn't become a messy God that's unholy. It's the beauty of the gospel of what God has done. Why does God change our story? Because he is rich in mercy, number one. And number two, because he is motivated by a chief value. And God's chief value is love. It's love. He is rich in mercy. And he loved us so much. Rich in mercy and he loved us so much. When did God start loving you? Romans 5 says, before you loved him, before you sought him, before you turned to him, God loved you. Stay with me. If his love began before you even became a son or a daughter, then what makes you think that his love has run out now that he's adopted and chosen you? <laughs> he loved you before you knew you were wrong. He loved you before you ever made that big promise you never were going to come through on. He loved you when you were at your prodigal worse. In the pigs and in the mud. He loved you. What makes you think that he doesn't love you now? What makes you think that his love's run out on you now? I've stated it many times. It's one of my favorite illustrations that Paul uses in the book of Romans. Because in Roman culture, if you had a child and... Uh, it was by natural means, the saying in Roman culture was, you could get rid of them because you didn't know what you were getting into. Some of you wish you had that clause right now. But what's profound is if you adopted in the Roman culture, you could never get rid of them because you knew exactly what you were getting into. So Paul, in his letter to the Romans, says, you've been adopted as sons and daughters. What is he saying? He's saying, God, rich in mercy deep in love, loved you in your sinful state, in your broken state, when you were dead and in your tomb. He loved you, and he knew exactly when he was calling you out of the tomb, everything that would come with it. And he's not giving you back, and he's not saying, I, for, I didn't know that that was going to be a part of it, or you would be there, or you wouldn't change fast enough to keep up. He, he, he's never had a second thought about choosing to love you in Christ Jesus, so much so that this love that we have in him, look at what it says with me, let's move, that even though we were dead because of our sins, verse 5, he gave us life when he raised Christ from the dead. Because he lives, there's hope for sinful people. Because he live, lives, you can be called saints even though your behavior is sinful. That's how he identifies you. He doesn't love the promised version of you that will be improved in years to come. He loves you as you are, where you are right now, in the love of a son that was willing to open up his veins and pour out the payment for your rebellion and sin so that you could be loved where you're at and transformed to become something that you are not by his very power and work in your life. So the text lays out, when Christ raised from the dead, he lavished us with his grace and it allowed us to be saved. And then in that, look at the proof and the impact of the resurrection. For he has raised us from the dead along with Christ. You've been raised. 
What are you? What has the resurrection done if you're in Christ? It means that you have been raised. Billy Graham was famous for saying, there'll come a day where you'll read a headline that will say, Billy Graham dead. In that day, don't believe it. Because I will never have been more alive in that moment. The sinner on the cross that hung by Jesus. And many of you have heard Alistair Begg's famous sermon where the guy on the cross who's never been to a discipleship class, who's never you know, gotten down soteriology or eschatology, he's never been to a membership of a church, he's not even attended a Sabbath service on the other side of professing faith in Jesus, hanging on the cross, cries out, and Jesus looked at him and says, Today, you will be with me in paradise. Alistair Begg famously says, I imagine what happened when he showed up to heaven and the angels were like, who are you again? How did you get here? Can you explain salvation? Have you been discipled? Do you understand whether or not you're a Calvinist or an Arminius? Are you a charismatic? Are you a reformed? Where, where do you stand on the spectrum of theological, tertiary, secondary issues? Are you a complementarian or an egalitarian? I don't know. The guy told me on the cross a few minutes ago that I could come. This is the beauty of the Easter story. You have been raised with Christ. You will die a physical death, but you will live in the presence and in the glory of God forever. And we've made it. We've made it some kind of secondary great life. Like, like it's just angels and harps and it's horrible music and we don't really want to be there because it's 5 o'clock somewhere. But let me, let me explain to you that you don't understand you don't understand life. You don't understand living because to be active and in the presence of God, no longer needing faith because it's been made sight, that's the goal. I want to see Jesus. I want to be with Jesus. That's the whole point of heaven. He's paved the streets with gold. You're not going to care. You want Jesus when you get there. That's all you want. And he gives himself to us and we get to enjoy him for eternity. He has raised us. Therefore, Paul would say in other letters, it's no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. My life was a life of sin, but now it's a life of Christ. That's what it means to be a Christian. My life was motivated by, wandering from, getting away with sin and rebellion from God. But I have been changed and resurrected. I was dead and he made me alive. And now I live for him, through him, and by him. For his glory, forever. That's the Christian life. It's what we're here to do. I get it. I'm yelling. I'm clapping. I'm excited. I want you to get it. It's not a compartmentalization. It's not a side piece, Jesus. It's not a in my drive, in my passenger seat. You're my co-pilot, Jesus. Take the will. Take the reins. Take my life. Take my time. Take my past. Take my history. You can have it all if I can have you. You can have it all if I can have you. And Jesus says, you can have me. You can have me. So of course you sell all the land to buy the pearl of great value. Of course he changed everything. Of course you're weird. Your citizenship's changed. You're on foreign soil. He raised us from the dead. That's how weird you are. You're alive walking in graveyards, yelling in tombs the gospel message so that the voice of God that was rich in mercy and love might quicken someone in their tomb to come alive too. (laughs) 
I, 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 don't, I don't know what else to do. I, I <laughs> he raised us from the dead along with Christ. He seated us with him in heavenly realms. Don't have time. Some of you think, some of you think, some of you think, some of you think, I'm going to be like back in the crowd. I'm just going to be way away from Jesus, barely get into heaven. No, no, no. I, I believe there's a moment, Revelation speaks of it, where you're going to be so close to Jesus. That he's wiping the tears from your face. That's revelation. So you're like, well, that's, that's, that's in theory. How can Jesus? It's in the book. You're a literalist where it's convenient for you, but then when you get uncomfortable with the intimacy of God, you become like someone said, oh, that's poetic. No, it's not. Revelation is not poetic. It's prophetic. That's the type of writing it is. And when we get to the very end, he's wiping the tears of the saints. And you thought he was absent from the tears. You thought the pain was meaningless. You thought God didn't care. Oh, every bit of your life in Christ Jesus is being written into a story. Oh, I'm getting ahead. Okay. He seated us with him in heavenly realms because we are united with Christ Jesus. So God, why did he do this? So that he can point to us in all future ages as examples. Okay, this is where a lot of Christians get sideways. So we try and put on our Easter best to cover up and make us look good and impress everybody. And my son, he came into my office today and said, you and mom are just trying to impress people today. Because <laughs> your, kid, your kids never let you get away with anything, right? It was a rainy day. It felt like a pandemic yesterday. We were in our house for a long time. We got lazy and slothful. It was not a great day. It was a day of silence and arguing with our kids. That's what the day was at our house. And a dog peeing and pooping and making me think I'm going to kill a dog. That, that's... that's <laughs> I've almost murdered humans and dogs in the last 24 hours, but God. Oh, we got testimony in the church now. It's trying to impress people. No, no, this is, what, this is what the point of being an example is. It's not your behavior. It's not your good conduct. It's not your long-observed obedience. No, no, no. It is the incredible wealth of his grace and kindness towards you. This is the example. You still wonder. You still leave his side. But he's still kind. He's still gracious. And he hasn't abandoned or left you. <laughs> so what's God doing? Hmm. What's the fruit of the resurrected life? It's this. God saved you by his grace when you believed. And you can't take credit for this. It's a gift from God. This is the resurrected life. It is a life that is meek and humble. Men in the church, many of you want to be loud and boisterous and tough, and you've forgotten that part of being a man of God, part of the fruit of the work of God in your life, is that you are tender and meek. We've created men's conferences where you run around with axes and yell in the woods while completely throwing out the Sermon on the Mount, which calls for gentleness, gentleness in the right place, gentleness and kindness. Huh. 
We are examples and witnesses of his kindness, his gentleness, his grace, his mercy. And we've been given a salvation that's not been taken away from us based on future performance or because we've not done everything that we thought we were going to do or we're not where we thought we would be because salvation is not a reward for the good things we have done so none of you can boast about it. So the Christian life is this humble clinging to Jesus. I don't know how else to describe it. It's, it's this humble like, I don't know why he lets me cling, but he's letting me be here. I don't know why I get him. I don't know why he doesn't, like, just let me wander off. Let me go. He keeps showing up, and I try and run ahead of him, and the next thing you know, I get to my end, and he's like, hey. I mean, think about the disciples. They all have betrayed Jesus. They hear on the first Easter morning, Jesus is alive. What they forgot is he was already ahead of them in their failure. So they go fishing and doing what they did before they ever met Jesus. And guess who's on the beach in the midst of their failure, in the midst of them trying to pick up an old life? Jesus. See, the the text ends with this beautiful statement. It says, we are God's masterpiece. And the the wording on it speaks to, will you hand me that? Speaks to us being a poem that God is writing. And the idea is not the poem begins when you start following Jesus. It's that the poem began before you ever turned to him. You see, he doesn't edit out like all of the Tupac lines and then add Lecrae in later when you become Christian. He, he keeps all of it in the story and he weaves it within his story and it becomes a beautiful poem of his glory that echoes in eternity. You see, this right here is painted by one of my favorite painters. His name's Alan Smith. He's my grandfather. And in, in this house with an outdoor kitchen over here on the side and an outhouse in the back with no indoor plumbing and no electricity, this is the humble beginning where my family came from. In that house was a granddad, my granddad and his dad and his great-granddad would come by and visit and stay with them. And there wasn't much to see. It wasn't like we were going to change the world and fulfill the Great Commission. But God was at work in this humble beginning and in this broken house. See, my my great-great-granddad was a circuit-riding preacher. He would preach at a little church in a holler in the middle of nowhere, put on a robe and get on a horse sometimes, and then ride to another church and preach at that church in the middle of nowhere. And then he put that robe back on uh, after he got off that horse and go preach at another church in the middle of nowhere. And then they made trains. And they got into the area of the foothills of North Carolina, and he started preaching at one church and then hopping a train and riding to another church and preaching. And he did that. He was never heralded. He never wrote a book. There's not some theological dissertation on the great work that God did through him. In fact, I've never found or met anyone that knew my great-granddaddy and his preaching and teaching or the legacy that it left behind in the foothills of North Carolina. But in there, God was doing something. And out of this little humble beginning in this picture, this big picture that you can see now, I know that there was a granddad that fell in love with Jesus that would sometimes go along with his granddad on those circuit-riding Sundays and hang out with him as his granddad would preach the same sermon over and over and over again. And with it became a man that became an insurance salesman that loved God and raised his family to love God. And out of that came an uncle named Uncle Rick that became a pastor at a church locally. Uncle Rick was Pentecostal. Because God healed him. No, he, he healed him. It's hard, it's easy not to be Pentecostal if God doesn't intersect your story and heal you. But if he heals you supernaturally, uh, forget about it. You might as well just go and start running the aisles with him. And I watched my Uncle Rick change his career in the middle of his life when he had a family to feed. And let's just be honest, ministry ain't the easiest way to feed a family. 
most ministries. I watched him labor and preach and, and, and serve the Lord faithfully. And I thought, man, good for him. Then 19 years after seeing that example, after coming from this story that God was painting in our life, I uh, was sitting in a uh, dorm at Anderson University. I'd heard the gospel 300 times. I was a cultural deep south atheist. What does that mean? I went to church. I uh, heard the gospel, could preach, proclaim, knew a lot of it, but it never changed my life. And I heard the same message that had been preached 300 plus times, and all of a sudden something changed. Something changed. I was in a tomb and God woke me up. I was dead and God made me alive. And nothing has ever been the same. And now, for 19 years. For 19 years. No. You've got to understand this. 19 years. I've been alive. God has done through me what I don't deserve to be done through me. God has worked and moved in powerful ways. His mercy has been rich. His grace has been great. My sin has been deep. His love hasn't run out. And I'm, I'm, just, I'm just here calling into some tombs today. Because maybe you're a cultural, deep south, entitled Christian who's never experienced the resurrection of Jesus. And if that's you, maybe today is the day where God's calling you from your tomb to wake up. To come out and experience real life. Our prayer team's here. They love to talk with you about what it means to have a relationship with Jesus. And I want to invite you, if that's you... As we sing this next song, to stand to your feet, leave your pride, leave your old life, and leave your tomb behind, and come forward and allow them to talk with you about what it means to have a relationship with Jesus. Next week, we're going to baptize a lot of people. Some of you who aren't planning on getting baptized, within the next 30 minutes, are going to become one of those people. If you need to be baptized, you come forward as well. You move as the Lord leads. In Jesus' name, let's stand. Let's respond.